Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Welcome back to At Your Service, the place where it helps to have a point. So, and I want to compliment, we had a caller last hour called in, disagreed with me, but we had a very, we had an excellent exchange of ideas. And that's what I enjoy about doing this show. That's why I'm here, right here with you, is is this marketplace of ideas, this exchange of opinions. I love that. And obviously you do too, because you're listening and you're texting. We've gotten a, a bajillion texts, which I'm not sure exactly what number a bajillion is, but we got them here tonight. And so appreciate you listening. Thanks for tuning in to At Your Service. And again, I always like it when callers disagree with me. I'm, I enjoy that because that's that, again, that that uh, that clash of ideas where we can actually learn something. At the end of the call with the uh, caller last hour, we actually agreed on a lot of things once we started talking. So always, I would always encourage you. Uh, if you want to call in and disagree with me, don't be afraid. Love that as always. One of the one of the stories that Brad Choate just covered was this issue regarding the Dobbs shooting case that occurred yesterday. And from my legal perspective, what I find interesting about this is that both the shooter and the victim, both of them will probably pursue workers' compensation benefits. And uh, fights at work are often the, the uh, a uh, an avenue for a workers' compensation claim. In fact, in the in the last four months, I think I've I've taken three cases to trial in work comp situations involving fights at work. So it happens a lot. Uh, this is not necessarily unique, other than the use of the firearm. That is unique. I, I don't typically see those. I've seen one with a firearm several years ago, but that certainly is not common. My favorite fight case at work, though, was a case that I had where the, the claimant picked a fight with a coworker. But there were two problems with this. First of all, the guy that picked the fight was about 5'5", five, five, and the guy he picked a fight with was an ex-Marine who came in about 6'1". And, folks, it was an extremely short fight. 
it it did not last long, and it did not end well for the guy who started the fight, who was the five five guy. We took I took that case to trial and won that too. But I'm thinking, dude, if you're gonna pick a fight with someone at work, the ex marine is not the guy that you pick. <laughs> Anyone else is fine, but don't pick him. So we got to keep that in mind if you're ever anticipating starting an altercation uh, anywhere or even in the workplace. At the top of the hour, CBS News covered something, and I want to come back to that uh, in the couple of minutes that we have here, because Matt Gates uh, in the in this strange thing that we're seeing from Capitol Hill of Kevin McCarthy can't uh, nail down the speaker's position. Matt Gates nominated Donald J. Trump to be Speaker of the House. And it reminded me that under the Constitution, it does not specifically state that the Speaker of the House has to actually be a member of Congress. Anyone, anyone could be technically uh, nominated and approved to be the Speaker of the House. So, for example, if everyone right now loves uh, Zelensky, uh, he he could be the next Speaker of the House, at least legally, uh, certainly not politically or Realistically, but there would be no uh, there would be no prohibition against it. In fact, Matt Gates isn't the first. I, I don't have a list, and I'd have to research it. But there have been cases in the past where others have nominated non-members of Congress to be the Speaker of the House. So this is not the first time this has happened, and it probably won't be the last either. Uh, <laughs> Because you can just nominate uh, and vote for uh, apparently whoever you want when you're trying to pick uh, the Speaker of the House. I'm going to take a break here a little bit early because I want to leave time for my conversation. Coming up after this break, I'm going to talk to uh, Attorney John Davis, former judge, former federal prosecutor, current criminal defense attorney. And we're going to break down some of the information that was released today in the probable cause statement regarding the Idaho murders. You're going to want to stick around for this because you won't hear this anywhere else except right here on At Your Service, Camo X. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. 
been about seven weeks since those brutal murders of university students uh, in Idaho. And the suspect, 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger, he was extradited to Ohio uh, just this very morning. And joining us to discuss this investigation is a former judge, former U.S. Assistant Attorney General, and now criminal defense attorney John Davis with the law firm of Kessler Williams. Hey, John, welcome back to X. Hey, Brad, how are you? I'm doing great, sir. It's great to talk to you. Uh, We swapped some emails today about the uh, probable cause statement, and I'll I'll get into that in just a moment. But the the suspect was a Ph.D. student in criminology uh, at a nearby university. And the the police haven't said anything, at least that I've seen, about a possible motive. But we did have this probable cause statement. Uh, what did you see in that probable cause statement uh, that to you was interesting? Well, let's let's start off with the probable cause statement itself. No investigation is going to reveal everything they have for just the preliminary step of a probable cause statement, because it's exactly that. Was a crime probably committed and did this person probably commit it? That's a lot different than beyond a reasonable doubt if you were at a jury. So they're only going to put in enough that gets them beyond that hurdle of probable cause. Now, what was interesting that it, it probably surpassed that was the DNA evidence that was that was on the uh, the holster of the, um, the, of the knife that, alleged, yeah, that was allegedly used. So, I mean... I read that probable cause statement. It's I, my memory is it's 19 pages long. It is. It is comprehensive, but I'm next to guarantee you there's more things coming mm-hmm. as time goes on that didn't have to be revealed just to get to probable cause. Well, let's talk about that because the probable cause statement states that they uh, the police or investigators found this DNA. Uh, from the suspect. They didn't know who the suspect was at the time, but they found DNA that did not belong to any of the victims on this sheath that was mistakenly left at the scene of the crime. And then based upon that DNA, investigators went and looked at uh, genetics and genetic websites to to try to develop a pool or or at least a lead to go to uh, where this suspect is. Now, the investigators I also was reported today that the investigators then obtained DNA from the suspect's father in Pennsylvania. Walk us through how would that happen procedurally if the police have this evidence and they want to compare it, but they don't want to go in and get a search warrant and tip off the suspect that they're investigating him. How do they go about getting DNA evidence from the father? Well, there's a lot of steps between grabbing that sheath and getting to Pennsylvania to get the DNA from the father. Yeah. And that's so, what I want to talk to you about. What are those steps? Well, what the what the probable cause statement spells out is that they used everything in the toy box that the feds have for electronic forensics. So the uh, Hyundai Elantra that was seen out in front of the, of the house, they 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 were able to, uh, according to the probable cause statement, they were able to connect that car to the suspect as the driver by 
cell phone evidence, by license plate readers, by following that thing around from Washington to the crime scene and noticing that the car was in front of that residence days before, weeks before the murder, thinking that he's stalking them. And the way they did it was ingenious. That led them all the way to Pennsylvania. They went in the house. The father gave consent to search the house. They grabbed something out of a wastebasket. It didn't say what it was. Could have been a Kleenex, could have been a soda can, could have been a cigarette butt, could have been anything that they get DNA off of. And they determined that the DNA came back to the father of the suspect. And lo and behold, the suspect lived there mm-hmm. and, in fact, was his son. We're, we're talking to former U.S. Assistant Attorney General, or attorney, rather, and now criminal defense attorney, John Davis. He's with the law firm of Kessler Williams. And, John, I want to unpack, because what you just said over the last minute and a half contains <laughs> a lot of more information. For example, from the probable cause statement, uh, there the cell phone evidence showed that the suspect did not have his cell phone on or with him at the time of the crime. But explain to us, though, because in the probable cause statement, it demonstrated that as far back as August, he had been, for lack of a better term, casing the place. And how can police go backwards in time in order to obtain cell phone records to demonstrate that a suspect is in the area of where a future crime was actually committed? Well, there's a there's a couple things. Well, there's more than a couple things, but there's a couple things that this investigation used. Pen registers and trap and trace and what I call cell tower dumps, um, which is the forensics of cell towers. So if your cell phone is on right now, and it probably is, it is pinging off of the cell tower that's closest to wherever we are right now. Um, If there was a murder committed on the 4th of July last year, and I think as an FBI agent, let's say, I think this person committed it, I could go back and ask for your historic cell tower information on the 4th of July. And lo and behold, your phone is pinging off mm-hmm. the tower, you know, at, 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 at Kirkwood or wherever the murder occurs. But, but, but um, let's take the opposite side of that, John. And this isn't what happened in the present case, but the opposite can also happen, right? In other words, if the police or the investigators or the FBI, they don't have a specific suspect, they can go to the cell tower or towers that are closest to the scene of a crime and obtain the identities of everyone's cell phone that was in the vicinity of that tower within a specified time frame. Isn't that called geofencing? That is geofencing, but that's a lot of information, and that is that is geofencing, but it's hard to narrow it down. So in this case, they did they got the cell phone information off of the license plate. They, they connected that Elantra with the license plate from him in Pennsylvania. They figured out who the guy was that the license plate was registered to. They found out his cell phone number. They go to the cell phone company and get the records. Now, a, a pen register and a trap and trace is what you and I call caller ID. The government, it's, it's not a big burden at all. You have to prove that you're a federal agent. You have to prove there's a U.S. attorney involved, and you have to prove that there's a federal investigation going on, and this phone number might be involved with it. And that's all you have to do to convince a magistrate judge in federal court 
to issue what's called a pen register trap and trace. And then for 30, 60, 90 days, every number that phone calls or every number that calls that phone is traced, not what was said, not the texts that were made, but just the numbers that were called. And they can tell who this person is communicating to. And, and I don't think that most people understand the complexity or uh, the dimensions by which police have all of these tools, that authorities have all of these electronic tools at their disposal to do these types of investigations. Uh, and you've, well, helped, you've helped explain some of that. You know, it, it, it helps a lot that the, the Moscow police, the, the Idaho police, had the, the, uh, the help of the FBI because this is, this is generally a, a federal toolbox that is pulled from. I've, I've never seen a state prosecution that used pen registers or, or uh, trap and traces, anything of that measure, or cell dumps, anything like that. But um, with the federal involvement in it, they've got a lot more tools to work with. And I'm sure that went a long way to making this investigation as successful as it was. Yeah, we're, we're talking to criminal defense attorney John Davis with the law firm of Kessler Williams. And John, as I was looking through this 19-page probable cause statement, there were several pages in there that were redacted. Tell us about why would information be redacted from a public release of a probable cause statement? Well, first off, the judge who made the probable cause statement be released didn't have to do that. So that was discretionary on the magistrate judge that did that um, or associate circuit judge that did that in Idaho. However, there is material in there that could either be sensitive to the investigation or it can be sensitive to somebody's identity, social security number, address, telephone number, things like that, that they're going to redact that the public cannot see. My read of the 19 pages that was not redacted um, I don't think there was anything really substantive that was missing. They certainly made the probable cause um, yes. standard. And, and part but, of that uh, was also done, John, with, with something called license plate readers. What are, what are license plate readers? I mean, the name implies what they are, but how is it that investigators or authorities use license plate readers in a case like this? Yeah, I've used them hundreds of times in investigations when I was a U.S. attorney, and you can even use them as, as – state prosecutors too, uh, especially in St. Louis area, there are license plate readers that are basically cameras that if I know a suspect uh, may have burglarized the house or killed somebody or something like that, you can go through the cameras at all the different intersections in a metropolitan area and look for that license plate number. And so it's not just a white Hyundai Elantra. It's one registered to that plate. So you know who that is. Wait, you don't know who it is. You know what car it is that went through, but you, then surveillance picks them up, in this case, at a grocery store. And then the security cam picks that gentleman up at the grocery store buying whatever it was he was buying at the uh, cash register to prove that that's who was driving that car. Well, I want to talk about the, the DNA evidence again, and, and now I want you to take off your prosecuting attorney's hat and put on, put on your criminal defense attorney hat. Because if, if the DNA from the suspect, and we have to assume this is the case, 
matches the DNA that was found at the scene of the crime. Is that definitive and how definitive in terms of guilt and how would a defense attorney challenge that particular evidence? I'll tell you, Bradley, I would much rather prosecute this case than defend it, from what I know so far. But, um, but but DNA evidence at the scene like this, in of itself, just demonstrates that he was at the scene of the crime, not that he necessarily exactly. committed the crime. That's exactly right. But the fact that it's on a sheet that holds a knife... Yeah, that, that you know, that's bad. That. <laughs> yeah. That's bad. Ooh, that's bad. <laughs> like I said, I'd rather prosecute than defend this one. <laughs> right. But it is definitive, though, in terms of DNA evidence. Things have come a long way, and a lot of times I think we get jaded by when we watch Law & Order and criminal TV shows where everything's wrapped up in 44 minutes. But in this instance, back to real life, DNA evidence has progressed to the point where it is definitive, at least in terms of placing this defendant at the scene of the crime. Yeah, and in this case, I think the DNA evidence is icing on the cake. The It may be circumstantial, what the probable cause statement says, and I still believe there's going to be more information that comes out later. It's just enough probable cause to make probable cause. But the circumstantial evidence that his cell phone is traced basically stalking the area where the murders occurred. And he turns his phone off at the instant hour where the murders allegedly occurred because he's a criminology student and he knows they're tracing the phone, but you don't turn your phone off on the days that you're, you're stalking the house because you're not committing a crime. But on the day you do commit the crime, mysteriously, the phone goes off at 4 a.m. Yeah, that that gets to be pretty damaging. Hey, we're going to have to take a break here in a moment, John, but I want to get this question in because this is the inside baseball analysis that most folks are not accustomed to uh, unless they do this like you do. So walk us through what's going to be happening in the coming weeks and months procedurally in terms of maybe challenging the evidence, challenging the collection of the evidence, uh, negotiations going into a potential trial. What are some of the highlights of what we'll see procedurally over the coming months? Well, the negotiations are going to be ongoing throughout probably more than months. Um, but he's charged with first-degree murder and and burglary, um, which are serious, serious penalties in Idaho. But um, procedurally, what you'll see is at the pretrial level, the lower court in Missouri, we call it associate circuit court. In federal court, they call it magistrate court. The pretrial matters are going to be motions to suppress. Whatever evidence they have, did the government seize it properly, meaning constitutionally? Did they violate his Fourth Amendment rights to privacy? Did they violate his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent or anything of that matter? You're going to see motions to suppress, things like that. Um, and that'll be litigated out until you reach either a preliminary hearing or um, an indictment from a grand jury that sends it up to circuit court, which is what we call it in Missouri, or district court if you're in federal court, and that's the trial level. And that's where plea negotiations really happen to try and dispose of this thing short of a jury trial. But in all honesty, I really don't see that happening here. Well, because of the the depth and the, the, the width and breadth of the, the evidence? Therapy. 
Yes, yes. Well, Idaho has a death penalty. And is this the type of case where the death penalty would be on the table? And how might prosecutors use the possibility of the death penalty in negotiations with the suspect's attorney? Bradley, the fact that you and I are in St. Louis, Missouri, talking about murders in Idaho, yes, death penalty is on the table. And just like anybody else, do you want to negotiate that? you want to roll the dice or go to trial? So I honestly think that the prosecutor's office is going to put the death penalty on the table and force the defendant to say yay or nay. So in other words, just to make it clear, the, the, the negotiations here would go, the prosecutors lay out the case for the death penalty, and the defense attorney representing the suspect here would say, I'll plead guilty to murder uh, as long as the death penalty is removed from the sentencing. Correct. Take it off the table, and then we can negotiate. Very good. Which would be, which would be life without parole. Correct. Right. Yeah. This guy's never going to get out one way or the other. Uh, John Davis. You're with uh, uh, Kessler Williams. If folks have questions or need need their own defense attorney, how can they reach you? Uh, my best number is 314-696-9229. But uh, I'm also at john.davis at kesslerwilliams.com and would love to hear from you. John, great to talk to you as always, my friend. And uh, keep in touch. Will do. You too. And I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you as this case progresses. Uh, I want to open up the phone lines here, 314-436-7900. What are your thoughts on this case, how it's transpired, how it occurred? Do you have theories about why this guy did it? He was a Ph.D. candidate in criminology. Was he really trying to move this from lecture to lab and really try to try out his own experiments? What do you think? 314-436-7900 on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Idaho murders case. What do you think? What do you think about a motive? Why did he do it? What do you think about the evidence that you heard discussed here tonight or elsewhere? Is he guilty? Is he not guilty? What are your thoughts? 314-436-7900. Call or text and Barbara's been holding through the break. Hey, Barbara, welcome to KMOX. Yes. Uh, I wanted to tell you, I think the evidence proves probably he did do it. And uh, I don't know why, but he's a bad man. He murdered four people, innocent people. So um, he'll have to face the consequences of his actions. And, and there's actually a, a lot of victims here, Barbara, not just the four that were killed, but the the families of those, they're all victims. They're going to be traumatized for life. Even the family of the suspect, uh, that family is going to be traumatized for life. So they're, they're, the, the saying goes that sin splatters, and, and this event is going to splatter on a lot of people, isn't it? Yes, and on his family, too. And he, was, he seemed like a, a very intelligent man with a, going for a Ph.D. I couldn't understand how he could do such a terrible thing. Mm. Well, I, I one of the things, Barbara, I don't know if you heard about this, but it was published the last couple of weeks that that he was actually uh, trolling on Reddit, looking for people who had committed heinous crimes. 
to explain to him for a so-called research paper that he was writing. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was true that he was asking people to contact him and explain the why they committed crimes and how they felt during the commission of those crimes. Do you think that for a guy who's studying criminology, he just decided, listen, I've been studying this for so long, I wonder if I could get away with the perfect murder? No, there is no perfect murder because there's always evidence. And and the FBI is very smart and the CIA. And uh, there are cell phone towers all over the place that can show your location. And uh, even even a, a regular um, rotary phone could tell you who's who's been calling you and who you're talking to and everything. Um, in this day and age, it, it, there is no way that you could you should be able to get away with the perfect murder. Very good, Barbara. Hey, thank you for calling in this evening. It was great to talk to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Angie, what are your thoughts on this uh, this entire criminal investigation and where it's going? Well, this is my theory. I think he's going to say, yes, I was there, but I found him dead. Okay, and so that would explain why he was at the scene but how do you explain away uh, the fact that he had been stalking that place for so long, for months, going back to August of last year, and the fact that his DNA was found on a knife sheath? How do you, how do you explain that away? Well, the knife sheath, first of all, I don't know what a sheath is. A, sheath, well, uh, a knife sheath is the, is the case that a knife yeah. is kept in. That's what I take it. But what I think is he's, again, going to admit he's pretty savvy, and he thinks, but I, I think he's dumb as a rock. But anyway. <laughs> I, <laughs> Barbara or Angie, I, I think you're exactly right. He was as dumb as a rock because he kept trying to case the place, and he left his cell phone on. Every time he went to check out the place, he left his cell phone on. He, he must not have been a very good criminology student, or he would have figured out, leave the phone at home, dude. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so so you I think he's going to say that, uh, uh, that he, was, uh, he actually went in and he already found them dead? Yes, I do. Just to qualify it, I think he's going to say, Again, because he thinks he's so smart, he's going to admit, well, yeah, I did stalk him. I had some kind of a weird obsession to maybe even the boy. Maybe it wasn't a girl thing. Maybe like the young man that was killed. Or And and I came to, uh, I'm guilty conscious. I came in uh, in the dead of night and I turned my cell phone off. I don't know why. And uh, I wanted to, you know, just be there and and if they're not awake or whatever where I'm going with this is he's gonna somehow admit to all of it so what are you gonna do when the guy says well I didn't mean to so I'm sorry I came to apologize but I found him seriously dead Hmm. and you know that's a good theory Angie that's a good theory Uh, it's got to be hard to argue that in with the uh, with the overwhelming amount of evidence but that's as good of a theory as anything. Oh, good. Thank I'm you. Glad of that. Thank you for sharing. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks. I uh, I tend to think that uh, that he's going to claim uh, insanity, that he had been studying criminology 
He became obsessed with it to the point that he lost the ability to reason. And when you lose the ability to reason, you at least then have the argument of saying, I'm not responsible because I lost the ability to determine the difference between right and wrong. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not I don't believe that's really the case. But when you're faced with overwhelming evidence, that's about the only card you've got left to play. Uh, before we take a break here, I, there's there's something I want to address, and then after the break, I'm going to get into some of this genealogy, genetic genealogy evidence. But one person texted in and said, Brad, you obviously don't like geofence warrants, but I love them. If you don't have anything to worry about, you're okay. Well, I understand that perspective. And yes, uh, obviously the person who texted has heard me rant about geofencing before because it's obviously good from an investigation standpoint, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but the reason why I'm uncomfortable with it is from this perspective. Traditionally, the way a crime is investigated, and we will, this case will be a textbook for years because we'll see how this happens right before our eyes in the media. And the, the way it goes is you follow the evidence. You start collecting evidence, and you see where the evidence goes. But with geofencing, it's the opposite. You have a pool of potential suspects because, again, with geofencing, the police contact the cell phone tower owner or the provider, and the police say or the FBI says, give us all of the cell phones who are in for people who are in this area during this time frame. So you and that's going to be an enormous amount of data because think about it, if you've got a cell tower on Highway 40, how many people are going to go past that cell tower during any given two or three hour time frame? It's going to be in the tens of thousands of people, if not more. And so with geofencing, you've, you have as, a, as an investigator, as the police, as the FBI, you're starting with a pool of people and you're investigating folks who are most likely innocent, and you're ruling them out as a suspect. Instead of following the evidence to determine who the suspect is, you're investigating people whom you know in advance are not suspects. Because if if 40,000 people pass by that cell tower during the relevant time frame, 40,000 people didn't commit this crime. So you're going to be investigating 39,999 people who are innocent to try to find that one person who's guilty. That's the first problem I have about it. The second problem is, is that people simply don't know. Now, obviously, this guy knew enough to turn off his cell phone when he committed the crime, but he left his cell phone on when he was casing the place over the prior months, and he left his cell phone on many times when he was driving up and down the street. So it, it, he obviously wasn't bright enough to say, if I'm planning on committing a crime, I better turn my cell phone off or simply leave the darn thing at home. So those are the reasons why I don't like geofencing. Is it legal? Yes. Do investigators use it? Yes. I, I don't think they could have used it in this instance, but I bet you that they tried. Uh, but it didn't work because the guy didn't have his cell phone. But they used what John Davis explained as pen registers uh, and uh, trace traps to go backwards in time to obtain the relevant cell phone data to show exactly where he was at any given time. And to me, I, I, I applaud the investigators here. I think they've done a fabulous job. 
excuse me. And it's ironic because police have been complaining, or rather the public had been complaining, and the media had been complaining for a long time about the lack of progress in the investigation. But once it got to this point, it looks pretty good. If you read that probable cause statement, they did a fabulous job, and I applaud the uh, the police in Idaho. I also applaud the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, who undoubtedly help them with this case. We're going to take a break. I'm going to wrap up some thoughts in the next segment about genetic DNA testing and genealogy testing and why that's an absolute crisis in terms of our privacy. Brad Young, at your service. Don't go away. Sliding into the last segment here on At Your Service tonight. Thanks for staying up late with us. I had one uh, person text in, this uh, DA better not offer any type of plea deal, period. And, And I understand the sentiment there. But I'll tell you what a good plea deal here. It's not like the prosecutor is going to plead this down to a muffler violation, okay? It's not going to be plead guilty to a muffler violation, pay a $200 fine, and then we'll let you go. I mean, obviously that's not going to happen. But one plea deal that I think would be uh, that would be worthwhile would be a plea deal where the prosecutors say plead guilty to everything, all four murders, burglary, plead guilty to all of that, and we will take the death penalty off the table. Now, I understand, and conceptually, and I've, I've talked about this before on the air, conceptually, I have no problem with the death penalty. I don't have a problem with it. If you commit that type of crime, it's okay if the state wants to execute you. The problem that I have with the death penalty is how it's taken out and how it is rather uh, worked out in the process. Because there are only two reasons for the death penalty, only two reasons. Number one, is that is the ultimate justice, the ultimate penalty, rather, for the ultimate crime. You take a life, your life is taken. So it's justice from that perspective. Secondly, the second rationale for the death penalty is deterrence. That if people say, well, listen, this guy committed murder, he was executed, I better not commit murder so I don't get executed, and deter people from committing the crimes. The problem with the death penalty, as it is carried out in this country, is that it takes 20 years or longer for that death penalty to be uh, to be executed. They execute the penalty and they execute the prisoner. But it takes so long that at that point, is it truly justice if there is a 20-year gap between the time that the crime is committed and the time that the death penalty is taken? Is, is that 20-year gap, is that really justice served. And secondly, are there any criminals in this country that would say, well, the dude lived 20 years on death row before he was executed. My goodness, uh, I might as well go ahead and commit the crime. So in other words, it kind of fails on both the justice and uh, the deterrence perspective. So I don't, again, I don't have a problem with the concept of the death penalty, just a problem with how it's carried out. Now, in the time that we have remaining. This is something I've talked about before on this show, and now we have an an opportunity to discuss it in a real-life situation because folks are always wanting to do this DNA testing. Two of my kids wanted to do it, 
And I said, no, you're not doing that. There's no way you're going to voluntarily give up your DNA. And what people do, because they want to know, am I Scottish? Am I Irish? Did my relatives come from Lithuania? Or whatever it might be. And that's fine and worthwhile to do. But in this instance, just like the first case that I heard this done in was in 2018 with the Golden State Killer case, where the police took DNA at the crime scene. They created a false account on DNA web genealogy websites, and they uploaded the DNA profile. And then that connected the prosecutors in the 2018 Golden State Killer case with a pool of potential suspects. So at that point, they knew the family where the killer was from. And so they simply walked through the genealogy of the family tree and found which people fit the suspect profile who committed the crime, and then they arrested him. They then took a DNA sample from the suspect. It matched the DNA found at the scene. He was convicted of murder and sentenced uh, for their life in prison without parole. That's exactly what was done in this Idaho murders case as well. So the problem that I have is is that family members who are wanting to to cure their curiosity about their genetic heritage are actually providing evidence that will be used to convict a relative of a heinous crime. So when those people did that, did they intend to provide evidence to convict a future relative? No, of course not. They were just trying to see if they were from Czechoslovakia or not. But the unintended consequence of that curiosity could very well imprison a family member for the rest of their lives. So I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm not saying that it's illegal, improper, unethical, or immoral. What I'm suggesting is is that we have no privacy today. You, anyone, I do it every day in my law firm. I can find anything about anybody in about an hour and a half through the resources that I have. And if there's something I can't find, I hire an investigator who will do it digitally and find it for me. And I find stuff all the time. I could tell you a lot of stories about things I've found. Even last week, I found some things that the, that the opposing counsel didn't even know about her own client. But the point is, is that all of that information can be found. The last vestige of privacy that you have in this country is the privacy of your DNA. And to me, it is astounding that people voluntarily, voluntarily disclose that last element of privacy that we have as human beings in a digital technological society, and we give it up voluntarily to see if we're Scottish. To me, that is the problem, not necessarily the methods by the police, but that we shouldn't be voluntarily disclosing It's just dropping our pants to the world in the last vestige of privacy. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed the show tonight. Make sure that you stick around because coming up at 10 o'clock, we will have the best of the Dave Glover show. That's up here from 10 to 11 right after the news. This has been At Your Service on Camo X. Thanks for sticking around with us. I will talk to you next week. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.